Welcome, this is your host, Zaida Sorel Medina with The Voice Podcast. After my siblings and I were taken away, I moved in with Aunt Doris. Doris was a chain cigarette smoker. If she was not drinking her coffee, she was smoking her cigarettes. She loved to gossip on the phone, read the television guide, and listen to Carlos Santana. Her house rules were endless. I could not run the water for long periods of time when I brushed my teeth. I could only bathe once a week. The refrigerator and cabinets were off limits. Bedtime was nine o'clock. If I made a look on my face that resembled defiance by any means, I was subject to a dreadful whipping. But after some years of living with Aunt Doris, she must have gotten tired of me. And just like that, I moved back in with my mom, Yetta. In my new neighborhood, I had to adjust to the Midwest slang. This, that, those, them, er, body, er, thing. My mom gave me a knife. I was 11 years old. Take this, she said. You might need it walking home from school. Yetta lived in a new apartment called a shotgun apartment. They called it a shotgun because the person in the living room could shoot a bullet through all of the rooms. In other words, each room was behind one another, so we had to pass through one room in order to get to the other room. My mother's bedroom, which was located behind the living room, did not have a door. In an attempt to create privacy, she placed a sheet between the two rooms. Yetta was frugal. She purchased generic brands of tissue toothpaste, soap, just so that she can have the money to buy true essentials, bread, milk, and a pick-three lottery ticket. From time to time, my mother randomly asked me for three numbers for the lottery. Sada, give me three numbers! She hollered from her bedroom, taking note of my response. Once, I gave her three numbers, and she won. Two days in a row. One day, we're going to hit it big. You'll see, my mom said all the time. We're going to buy a house in paradise. Somewhere in paradise to my mom meant somewhere outside of the ghetto. My mother had big dreams, and the biggest one was that one day we'd all be together. Crystal. Maria, Ricardo, Andres, Jonathan, Christopher, my mother, my long-lost sister Myra. Sometimes when I slept at night, I wondered when that day would be.
Occasionally, my cousin Stanley came over to hang out with my brother Ricardo. Stanley was brown-skinned and had a mischievous laugh. He was 15 years old and called himself an OG, or original gangster. I didn't know what an original gangster was, but it sounded powerful, and I wanted to be one. If you want to be an OG, you have to have a new name, he said. An OG name. Hmm, let me think of it. He put his hands to his chin and started tapping. Out of the blue, he issued my new name, Zilok. He taught me how to rap and then he issued my rap name, Riddles. He also explained to me that I needed to have a gangster look. So I had my mother braid my hair and wore my brother's Dickies pants and plaid shirts. My favorite music artists were Bone Thugs and Harmony and 3-6 Mafia. They rapped about killing people, smoking marijuana, and devil worship. My mother didn't think much of it. As long as I didn't get impregnated like the other girls in the hood, we were good. But my mom didn't have to worry about that, I told her. I was a tomboy. As an OG, I had to abide by two main rules. First, I could not trust the blood or a gang person who wore the color red. Stanley called blood slops, which was a condescending term OGs used towards bloods. Second, I could not trust a crip or a gang person who wore the color blue. The main rule was to remember that my colors were black and gray. I could not wear any other color other than those colors. But what was interesting is that no one at my school or in my neighborhood knew that I was a part of the gang. In fact, the only people who knew were Stanley, Ricardo, and I. I think we were the only members of the gang. It was our little secret. Being a part of a gang made me feel tough. Because in the ghetto, one could not be soft. I felt a renewed sense of self. I was 11 years old, and I was invincible. That Christmas, my brother Andres told me that I could have whatever I want. He'd buy it for me. Anything I ask, anything, he said. I thought about everything that I could have, but what I wanted the most was a gangster coat. You know, it's the kind of coat that gangsters wear. My brother grinned and said that he'd try his best to find me a gangster coat. And on Christmas Day, Christopher had the most gifts as he was the little one in the house. My brother didn't get me a gangster coat, but he did give me a button-down shirt like the ones he wore, which I really liked. Although I didn't get my gangster coat that I asked for, being with my family on Christmas Day was the best gift ever. Living with my mom, 
eventually didn't work out. I ran away from home a few times, got caught stealing candy from the grocery store, got into a few altercations. But when she woke up one day and saw that there were holes in her underwear, that was it. I was doing witchcraft, she said. How else could holes magically appear in her underwear? She threw some salt on my head, performed a prayer ritual, and tried to get the demons out of me. When the psychologist failed the both of us, the next best option was to move in with Aunt Doris. My new school was what people in the ghetto called the good part of town. For fun, students read books, played golf, and studied Latin. They knew nothing about hardcore rap music, let alone anything remotely related to gangbangers. They were connoisseurs of classical music and English literature. But I quickly adapted to my new existence. Reading books became a hobby. I became vegetarian because it was stylish. I no longer listened to rock music. Instead, I listened to Avril Lavigne. I used phrases such as recoil, perpetuate, and per se. I wore exotic colors such as neon orange and electric indigo. When I got to the ninth grade, I even set a goal for myself. I'm gonna be the first person in my family to go to college. But in order to do that, I'm never going to miss a homework assignment. I'm going to join every club in my high school so that I could be what the teachers call well-rounded. They said that I could get a scholarship if I were well-rounded. So I joined the wrestling club, the track club, the cross-country club, the gay club, the lunch club, and just about any other club that I can get my hands on. La Niña es Alta, my red-headed Puerto Rican Spanish teacher, Miss Munoz, said aloud to the students in the class. Then she wrote the sentence on the board, and then she turned to the class and asked what the plural would be. No one knew the answer, but I did. Las niñas son altas, I said. Miss Munoz turned her head in my direction and gave me a look of curiosity. Correct, she yelled with her eyebrows raised to her forehead. Las niñas son altas. ¿Eres Latina? No one had ever asked me if I was Latina. I was 14 years old in the ninth grade, and I had no concept of race or ethnicity. My alleged father who I met on a few occasions in my childhood, was French-Haitian Creole, whatever that meant. All I knew was that I was a brown girl from the hood who was Cuban descent, raised by an aunt who embraced being Spanish. She listened to Carlos Santana and mentioned nothing of our blackness. Thus, my blackness was not apparent to me growing up, and for the first time in life, 
I was asked about my ethnicity. So I opened my mouth and I said proudly to Miss Munoz, I'm Puerto Rican. I must have been Puerto Rican, I reckon, because I was Cuban descent. Mi paisana! Miss Munoz gave me a high five in front of my classmates, performing a joyful dance whereby she moved her hips in a fanciful motion. Paisana was the Spanish word to describe individuals of the same country of origin. My classmate, Reynida. Sitting across from me gave me a look of astonishment. She studied the geometry of my face closely, examining my nose and then my lips and then the texture of my hair. I didn't know that you weren't black, Seda. And then I said to her, I didn't know that I wasn't black either. One day, about a month into track training, a sharp pain pierced my right leg. The pain speedily increased to the point in which it hurt to walk. The more I ran, the more the pain persisted. It grew to the point in which I walked with a limp. Coach Keller noticed and pulled me aside. Seda, he said, looks like you got shin splits. I didn't know what shin splints were but it felt brutal. Come and see me tomorrow, and we'll see how bad they are. The following day, I went to Coach Keller's office. Two athletes sat on the bench and waited. The girl had an ice pack on her knee. The other athlete had a bandage wrapped around his ankle. When it was my turn, Coach Keller sat me on the bench, instructed me to lift my leg. He placed his two thumbs on my knee and gently ran them down my right leg slowly. After a few strokes, I could not endure the pain. It felt as if he was banging a hammer down my leg. Well, these are shin splints all right. He explained to me that shin splints were like tiny cracks in the bone. Then he cautioned me not to run again until my legs healed. If I can't run, what am I supposed to do? I asked Coach Keller. You'll have to sit out during practice, dear. Sit out during practice? Yep, that's what athletes do when they injure themselves. For how long? Until you heal. For the following days, I grew more impatient than ever. Every day I went to practice and I sat on the bench where I watched my fellow teammates train. Due to my leg injury, I walked slowly. It took forever to walk home. Aunt Doris became aggravated. You're spending too much time in school, she said to me one day. What do you mean? She paused and looked at me. 
Like I said, you are spending too much time in school. You need to be in the house by 4 p.m., she yelled. What? I have track practice. Track my ass. She stood in the hallway and stared at me with her nostrils flared and her hands on her hip. You can't run with broken legs. My legs aren't broken. You're limping. Broken legs are not. You're spending too much time in school. Now you stop running or else. I interrupted Aunt Doris and said, If I don't run track, they'll kick me off the team. They'll have to kick your ass off the team then. She shrugged her shoulders nonchalantly. Don't you know that's what colleges look for, Aunt Doris? They look for students to be well-rounded. Well round my ass. Stop talking that crazy stuff. As long as you are living under my roof, you do what I say. Well, how am I going to pay for college? College? You can't be serious. She laughed with deep amusement. That's what my daughter said too. And then they ended up knocked up. Well... I'm not your daughter's. I have a goal. I'm going to be the first person in the family to graduate from college. Doris turned around and looked down at me. I could tell by her body language that she wanted to say, what the hell did you say? My words must have felt like a smack to her face. She stood there in the search for words, and then she said sharply, I see. You want to run track? Well, you're going to have to make a decision. You can either stop running track or get the hell out of here. There was a brief silence. I couldn't believe it. Aunt Doris was kicking me out for spending too much time in school. I had to make a choice to stay or to go. I didn't know about where I would go. I didn't even evaluate the situation. My response was so clear to me in my head. Going to college and overcoming my family's intergenerational poverty was my life's priority. So I had to run track and be involved in every club and sport because that's how I was going to get a scholarship to go to college. I wasn't going to let my leg injury get in the way of that, not to mention I was a straight-A student. I needed to stick to the plan. But Aunt Doris and I obviously weren't on the same page. And so I opened my mouth and uttered out the words plain and simply. I'm leaving. And this is how I became a homeless youth. for listening to The Voice Podcast. This is your host, Zaida. In this episode, I reflect on my experiences growing up in kinship care, living with my Aunt Doris, moving back in with my biological mom, and bouncing back and forth between the suburbs and the ghetto and different schools. Growing up in different neighborhoods and living with different members of my family certainly had an impact on my identity development. For the most part, I'd say I had a fluid identity, 
I adapted to my environment. Given my environment changed so drastically in my upbringing, so did my identity. This episode therefore reveals how urban context, alongside the family and school environments, have a profound impact on youth development, how we think, the music we listen to, and our goals and motivations. Unfortunately, but also fortunately, the outcome of my life adventures was that I ended up being a homeless youth throughout high school. And this, of course, set the tone for my life ahead of me. Based on my story, I have three takeaways for my listeners. The first takeaway, have a goal and stick to it. If you do not know where you are going, you could virtually end up anywhere. I had a goal and I accomplished it. I became the first person in my family to graduate from college. I ended up going forward to pursue my master's in social work and then my PhD in urban and environmental planning and policy. But that would not have been possible if I didn't set forth my goal when I was 14 years old. The second takeaway, understand people in their environment. Some people think that people are the way they are because of their individual decisions. While this may be partially true, if you really want to have a holistic understanding of people and their world, we must understand that people are representations of their environment. Their home environment, school environment, family environment, work environment, community environment, and so forth. The last takeaway, have strength, courage, and tenacity. This message is especially for people who are currently or who are former foster and homeless children and youth. Based on my experience, I realized that these were key ingredients to overcoming my adversity. Of course, other things were also helpful, such as having mentors and caring adults in my life who helped to pave the way. But it all started with me. By having strength, courage, and tenacity, I was able to overcome my adversity. Thank you all so much for listening to The Voice Podcast.